Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and today I'm joined by my dad, Jesse Winch. We are doing part two of the episode, The Original Inspiration. So basically, the first ever episode that I recorded for Thoughtful Intentions podcast um, was an interview with my dad and named the original inspiration because that's exactly what he is. Um, So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would encourage you to do that now. And if you did listen to it, but it's been a minute, which it has because we recorded that over a year ago now, I am going to reread his bio and try to catch you up to speed. Okay. Jesse Winch was born and raised in the Bronx of Irish immigrant parents. He is the former Cahirlock of the O'Neill Malcolm branch of CCE. A founding member of the band Celtic Thunder, Jesse also performs with various other groups, playing Balron, the Irish drum, guitar, bazooki, and harmonica, and has recorded widely with many notable musicians. In May of 2012, Jesse was inducted into the CCE Irish Music Hall of Fame. So that's a little bit about his like later adult life. Um, in the first episode, we cover more early adulthood, aka um, going to college and then going into the Peace Corps in Niger for two years after college and then coming back to uh, the States and going to grad school at Howard for African studies and then um, a little bit of music talk. So I think that's all you need to know Um, and this is just a little bit more of his story. So enjoy. Hi dad. Hi, Fiona. How are you? <laughs> good to see you. I'm good. Welcome back. So you're the first returning guest, and I'm really excited to be visiting part two of your adulthood. In our first interview, the first episode ever, we talked a little bit about your undergraduate experience at Iona, your time in the Peace Corps in Niger, and your graduate studies at Howard. And I know there's a lot of ground to cover, and while I tried to go through it chronologically, I know there's a few other things that were happening during your young adulthood that really shaped the person you are today. And as my listeners know, I'm very keen on learning about an untraditional path, and you have been my primary source of inspiration. Um, So with that, there's two topics that I want to cover today, Uh, your pacifism and your music. How's that sound? Sounds good. Yep. Um, Okay, so in our first interview, you mentioned that you first got word, uh, it feels weird to be kicking it off in the middle of, uh, in the middle of this, but for context, in our first interview, you mentioned that you first got word that the Vietnam, Vietnam War was underway while you were in Niger, or it was starting while you were in Niger in the Peace Corps. At what point did things start ramping up and, and you started getting involved in realizing and protesting and um, discovering your activism yeah. kind of well I mean I, I did know about Vietnam I knew something was going on there but uh, it, it wasn't very um, it wasn't in the news that much but what the, what the US was doing in Vietnam was kind of pretty much kept under wraps as much as possible and that's why I kind of didn't pay much attention to it but in the in Niger, I remember distinctly picking up a copy of the journal uh, Foreign Affairs that one of one of the other volunteers had, and I started reading an article about Vietnam, and I was like, "Whoa, we're really involved there, and we're really doing some kind of destructive work in a lot of ways." And I, and I didn't, and, and that sort of stayed in the back of my mind, and I kept, you know, stayed with the project and all that. Um, 
and it wasn't really until I got back back to uh, to the U.S. and was in graduate school uh, that I that I started paying a little more attention to what, what was what was happening. Um, and then I got involved with a group called the Committee of Returned Volunteers. Yes, I, I did want to ask about that too. Um, just the counterculture movement and what point you started well, kind of hitting the ground with that. It, it's kind of started there really. The Committee of Returned Volunteers, they were a group of returned Peace Corps volunteers, but also volunteers who had uh, worked for other agencies in the developing world. Um, and there was one called the Venture Ramos Brigade that uh, worked in Cuba and helped with the sugar harvest. And so, um, <clears throat> and the whole point of, of, the, of this Committee of Return Volunteers was to bring to the attention of, of uh, you know, U.S. Uh, policy makers the con- some of the conditions that existed in third world countries uh, that were, you know, poverty and poverty stricken and uh, needed the kinds of help that, that P- the Peace Corps provided, for example, and, and these other groups not necessarily military assistance. Can I hold off for a second? Um, I just feel like I want to paint a little bit more of a picture for everyone here. Like, can you give the, like, kind of ballpark years we're talking about, what age, kind of the just tone of the world? Yeah. Well, we're we're talking, so I, I, um, I started grad school in 1966 when I I got out of the Peace Corps, I went right, right to grad school. And I spent three years at Howard. So right, it was 60, which is what we talked about in our first. Yeah, 1969, I got my master's degree. And then that's kind of when, and, and, and by that point, I had decided to, to st- stay in Washington mm-hmm. and settled in, and got married in 68. And uh, so, so I was pretty much a D.C. person. And what was the tone of, like, the, the world around you? Uh, oh, it felt, it felt uh, in one way, it was kind of exciting uh, because it was it was like all, all of a sudden there, there was major concern and and you know de- there were demonstrations and there were there were protests and things like that it was it was a very um, uh, exciting but exciting in a in a um, I can't think of the word uh, <clears throat> not not in sort of a happy way you know what I mean it was like uh, demanding and uh, and and you kind of you wondered what was what was going to happen. Uh, you know what? What was uh, the United States going to do in Vietnam? You know, uh, all these bombings and all kinds of and stuff, um, and and all these killings and and everything else. And 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 here we were, uh, the uh, returned volunteers who had spent a couple of years working in like agricultural development and uh, teaching, t- even teaching English as a foreign language and uh, auto mechanics. You name it. You know, in, in an attempt to help. These, these developing countries, and then all of a sudden, we were seeing one of those countries being being you know torn apart internally. But then we took sides, and we came in and we tried to obliterate one side. So, do you would you have considered yourself a hippie? Oh, oh, well, <laughs> yes and no, because that was a term that you know I didn't. We didn't. The people involved in countercultural activities like that, we didn't na- come up with those names or terms. Didn't start calling ourselves the countercultural, uh, you know, um, or, or hippies. What hippies. did you call yourselves? Uh, I mean, didn't have a name really. We just were we just were concerned about about society, and wanted to wanted change to happen, and wanted you know wanted it to go in the right direction. And then it became it became a major movement in in the country, and um, drugs were were a factor. 
marijuana was on the rise and um, it, and music, all kinds of music, musical groups were were uh, you know on the scene and uh, singing and playing about about the cultural things that were happening, you know, and th that contributed a major uh, component to, uh, you know, what was going on. And then you had events like Woodstock and whatnot, you know, where it all, a lot of that came together. It was very liberating kind of kind of a For, feeling. I mean, you, I know that you almost attended Woodstock and did not, but... Right, right, I did not. I, I, but I, you were involved in um, that kind of environment. Oh, yeah. Because the people that I, I got involved with in, in, in CRV, Committee of Return Volunteers, um, several of them were musicians. And uh, we had a little, we started a band and sort of, we sort of, we would play like protest songs and that kind of thing. And also uh, um, American like folk songs and country music and that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know that like a lot of people, especially younger generations, I feel like, look back on the 70s six late 60s early 70s not a time period that we were necessarily um obviously there for but with kind of rose-colored glasses romanticizing this whole hippie culture and just how cool and funky and rebellious it was it grew actually grew out of out of sort of a, the 1950s beatnik kind of mood thing that was that happened where you know uh, which was sort of anti-establishment and, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of literary oriented and that kind of thing. And um, I think it was an outgrowth of that, like beatniks kind of became hippies and that sort of thing. And kind of one thing led to another and uh, the music was a big factor. So where do you fall into this category? I, it's hard to say. I mean... I, I'm not that analytical so about myself, you know, so much, but I, I saw myself, you know, uh, uh, directly involved in, in being critical of, of, um, of U.S. policy. That was my, it was, I, I didn't get involved in this because of marijuana or the music or, you know, it started with me with, with, with the politics more than anything else. And so... For those that don't know, you are recognized as a conscientious objector under the government. Yeah. And um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process and just applying for that status and whether or not people kind of saw it as like dodging the draft or what it was even like uh, to get yeah. that. And this was a big factor in, in my whole evolutionary thinking and my right. whole role in all this. What so you got a draft letter. Here's what happened. Uh, because I was a student, I had a, I had a student deferment, and um, and, and this is age. Well, the deferment was good until you reached the age of 26, and then and that and after after 26, you would not be drafted. That was the cutoff year, mm -hmm. the cutoff age. Uh, so I didn't think too much about it because I was in grad school, and it looked to me like I was going to be there when I turned 26. However. Even though I was still a full-time student, they took the the uh, deferment away, and gave me the one what they call the one A classification, which meant that I was eligible for the draft. And I thought, yeah, I well, you know, I, I said I'm not really, I'm not going to go in, go into the, I'm not going to go in the army. I'm not going to go and shoot, mm -hmm. kill people, and whatever. And I um, I got together with the draft counselor at the Friends Meeting House in Dupont Circle, 
uh, Bill Brubaker, who turned out to be also to be a piano player, who I later ended up in a band with. But uh, he was really good advising me. He said, you have, you have certain alternatives. Uh, you could go underground, go off the grid, safe houses and all that kind of thing, and disappear. And uh, that didn't appeal to me too much. I, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Then he said, you, 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 or you could go to Canada. And I, I actually know a, a, a former Peace Corps person in my in my in my group went did that moved to moved to Canada and not, he never came back. He just he stayed and became a Canadian. But that did not appeal to me either. And then he said the third thing is you could apply. But can you just move to Canada? Can you yeah, do that? Well, in back then you could you could just cross the line and you were you were gone. You know. Hmm. Um, I don't know too much about the details of that, but that's what this this one friend of mine did. The third option would be to apply for a conscientious objector status. And he said, that's that's the tough one. He said, because uh, they're not giving them out right now. They're not handing out conscientious. But that would be the legal route. That would be the legal way to go. That's right. Uh, th- you would be recognized by the selective service system as a conscientious objector and therefore not eligible for the draft. So, and he, he said, so here's the, here's the, the other part of that was, when you're if when you're turned down for conscientious objective status, you'll be made you'll be reclassified as one A, and you'll have to go. You'll have to serve. What does one A mean? Like the one next A means round? you're you're ready to go. You know, you're okay. you're out there. And like, um, what's the kind of turnaround for that? If someone calls on you, uh, it's a matter it's like of weeks. next day. You, you take a physical, and then uh, they tell you where to, they tell you to report in a week to some camp somewhere. But uh, he said you could you could. Uh, if you're if you're denied the conscientious objective status, you could re- still refuse induction, and if you refuse induction, that's a crime, and you and you could go to jail for it, and that's what that's probably what would happen. You tell me. So, uh, I decided that I was going to go that route, and I was going to apply for the CO, and if they turned me down, uh, and I and I had whatever a court hearing, and they and they said no, you you know. Uh, you have to serve, and I said, "No, I'm not going to serve." Then they said, "Well, then you have to go to jail." I, I would go to jail. I had decided that. What kind? Like, how long is that? I I don't remember. I'd have to. I you know, I didn't pay too much attention to it. It was more like the process, you know. Did I, it? Was that because you felt so confident? No, not at all. I felt that I really thought I would I would be turned down and I would go to jail, but I felt that it was worth it because I would be going to jail as somebody who was a conscientious objector who was not recognized by the system. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's morally, that's, that was the morally Did you have friends path. that ended up in that situation? No. That's good. I did not. But here's what happened, interestingly enough. First of all, I had to come up, I, had, I still have my application uh, somewhere. I feel like I spoiled the punchline by saying what <laughs> you are now. Well, let me, let me let me explain what what my what how my, it worked out my argument right what well, my position because you had to have you know, like if you were if you were raised uh, a Quaker, they're they're pacifist, p- the period, so you would not be drafted. Mm-hmm. Some some Quakers go go in. There's another there's a subcategory where you you would serve in the military, but as a uh, like a medic or something, sure. a non-combatant. I was not a, I was not going to do that either, so. Um, um, I, I based my application on my Catholic upbringing, and it, you know, it, and I remembered uh, from my Iona days, uh, Dorothy Day, who was the uh, 
ran a, a, an organization called the Catholic Worker and had had a, um, like a soup kitchen and stuff in the Bowery in, in Manhattan, and was was a very dedicated woman to to peace and justice in the world and um, based entirely on the teachings of Christ. And when you think about it, Jesus was what was the the original pacifist. Mm-hmm. And and I and I, it sort of resonated with me so much, and I and I so I I made that definitely a part of my application. The other side of it was my father, um, who you know did not have a much formal education. Uh, being he was an immigrant, as as was my mother and so forth, but was a very smart guy, and he could he fully understood. He said, he said, don't go. You know, he supported me. Um, that was a big factor for me. So I, so here's the thing. I, w- I had my hearing in the Bronx. And that was my counsel said, you know, that's the, another thing against you. If you were in some, some remote area of the country, you might, you might get away with it because, you know, they weren't, there weren't too many people applying for that kind of thing. But the, but the urban areas were where they were getting all their recruits at that time. So I went up, we went up to the hearing. I brought a – you were, were allowed to bring a uh, – um, a character witness. So I had the, my, the Peace Corps doctor, Dr. Dave Nicholas, came with me as my, re- my sort of character reference. And, but I was pretty shocked when I got to my hearing because the board, uh, they said, uh, Mr. Winch, where, uh, they asked me some questions. I, you know, there were some formalities in there, but basically they said, we're granting you the conscientious objective status because we we don't think you're trying just trying to get out of serving your country because you already served your country for two years in the Peace Corps. Right. I had never even thought of that. You didn't. As, I mean, as a reason, like I didn't, like I you know I I didn't think to say to them, I'm not trying to get out of serving my country because I did already do two years of my I gave two years of my life you know to, my, to uh, the Peace Corps is a is a government agency of the U, of the United States so you know. I, but they recognized that, and I was like, "Yes." And so, Doctor Nicholas and I went back to his apartment in Manhattan, and we had a few drinks, and we so we're, <laughs> celebrated. So you were in D.C. at the time, but you had to go to New York for this yeah, purpose. Yeah, to go to the Bronx, yeah, because that's where your ID is. From that's where I yeah, that's where I was registered. Right. Okay. Do you want water? No, I'm good. I'm good. Um. Well, that's kind of crazy. So, how did you feel like your patriotism or I don't I don't know identity as an American like how did you work that out when you were in the middle of protesting things I feel like now there's kind of a tarnish on um I you know being super patriotic or or I don't know how to explain this do you know what I'm saying yeah I do well you know that's the that's the issue like even today, you know, you, uh, right-wing people, you know, fly the American flag and think they own it, and they're totally wrong about that. It's, it, you know, being a patriot and being a patriotic American is, is as much what I did as what anybody w- would have done, uh, you know, on the other side of the spectrum. Um, so you didn't feel um, a kind of schism there at the time? No, in fact, that's that's why I didn't go to Canada and or go underground. I, I wanted to do it the way... You know, it was set up. The, 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 I wanted to go through the channels that were established. You know, f- for this whole thing. And that's a great point. Um, 
Well, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. And and at this point, you like you said, you were married and starting a family soon after. Um, I am thinking primarily. I'm I'm circling back momentarily to this kind of hippie thing because although I know that you don't necessarily you know that was a later term and there was so much more underneath the surface to this when I picture you at the time I picture you with that long hair I picture you holding Allie with that long hair looking like (laughs) Jesus um but I'm assuming that was just par for the course (laughs) yeah I I like the idea of you know um growing a beard and let my hair grow long it was kind of it was it was sort of a, a liberating kind of thing and it was fun so know. what kind of like parallels have you noticed if any uh, in recent history to that time period I know people draw parallels all the time but I don't know if there's anything that's like stood out to you um where you're just like oh my gosh this feels like xyz like com- now compared to yeah. back then well you know what's interesting uh, just just re- in the last you know uh, like year or two, um, all the protests about about the racism in, in this country and uh, um, you know it, it, and what has come out is not a whole lot has changed since the 1960s. So we had the Civil Rights Act and we had all the other kinds of uh, you know um, legal sort of changes, but but not much has changed on the ground. And, you know, and there was still a lot of discrimination and, and uh, racism in, in this country. But a, a lot of that is now, come, I think a lot of that's getting resolved and it remains to be seen how much, how long that's gonna take. But I think this is a major sort of second wave of, of um, you know, uh, educating people about, about our past and about our history. It's, it's an important thing to study, to understand the present. You know, mm-hmm. you have to know what happened in the past, and and this, so I, I definitely, it's not the same culturally, but it's but some of the same issues are still with us, and that's kind of sad in a way, and even even, even to relate that to like the Peace Corps and some of the work that we did, uh, like in a country like Niger, uh, it's still an impoverished country. You know, it's still. Uh, Is that surprise? Like at the time, you're twenty something. Did you just? think that everything would be kind of solved by now not necessarily uh like does that surprise you at all that the how long it's taken for things to well in retrospect i I would have to say yes but but at the time you know you you sort of think okay well uh this is what i'm doing some small part i have some small small part to play in this you know in, in improving uh conditions in this country or you know when I come out of college I was 21 you, you know you think you have altruistic you know uh, feelings and think you like you want to what can I do to make the world better kind of thing you know that's really that was kind of in the back of my mind and so the Peace Corps seemed like a, like a great idea for that and and it, and it was and, and in some ways still is because there are still some projects that that are out there. Uh, did the committee of returned volunteers like? Did they get in trouble at all? I just I think about listening to those tapes. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, we we got <laughs> yeah. We were definitely viewed as a radical, a radical group. I don't know. Uh, sure. There's an FBI file on me on, on somewhere. You think so? <laughs> oh yeah. Why? Just because the. We did things. We like we we took over the Peace Corps building, during one really? of the protests. You know how people were taking over buildings in yeah. 1968 and went all that way. 
But why? Were you just unsatisfied with the way the Peace Corps was speaking well, it was, about things? Well, it was, that, in part, yes, although I, I mean, I personally wasn't, but we needed to make a statement, you know, that, 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 uh, um, the volunteers were, the, vol- the volunteers, you need to listen to what we're, we were saying, and, you know, it, and it was a little bit, a little naive, too, at the time, but, uh, why? Well, because, you know, it's, you're, 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 Talking to the um, the government, the American government, the and man. It's, uh, this monolithic thing, you know, that, you know, saying change, you know, to do better. This, you know, it's like. I but what what else are you supposed to do? Well, I mean, th- uh, that seemed to be the thing to do, and and still, people are still demonstrating and showing their you know their opinions and and what and whatnot. Uh, today, it's still happening. Uh, you do have to look at what 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 are the results of that. Like, do you, are you trying to say that you think that it has to be paired with an action for it to? Well, that would you would hope so. You would hope it would you know result in some 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 development, some positive. I should say um, the reason I brought the, the tapes is because in college, I did um, a theater history project where I compared or rather contrasted music um that was popular during world war ii and music that was popular during the vietnam war because of um how stark it was and the differences like the music in world war ii was so pro america pro war even like just Mm -hmm. pro like fighting kind of supporting the war yeah yeah yeah. and then in the Vietnam War era obviously is like the complete opposite and I used some tapes that the Committee of Returned Volunteers recorded at the time um, where they're just yelling some (laughs) obscenities about you know it got very frustrating to sort of you know go out there and say stop the war you know uh, what do you what do you do you know so yeah we went that tape was uh, designed to be sent to uh, prisoners of war in Vietnam, American prisoners of war, and we were, you know, sending them like Creedence Clearwater Revival stuff and Country Joe and the Fish singing. Like, with what hope? Like, what kind of outcome were you hoping with that? Just what kind of message did you want to send to them? Uh, that there were there were people back home who were ag- against the war and were were you know campaigning to end it and campaigning to you know to to get them like is this in okay in solidarity yeah in in solidarity with them yeah not with the war effort but with what with With the people that were there that didn't choose to be there yes yes exactly okay all right well on that note i kind of want to transition to music um but i want to ask you if there's anything else you wanted to say about your pacifism in that time and um all that before we get into the music front Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You wrote notes. I didn't know what you wrote notes about. Uh, I just I wanted to make sure I I uh, I, I know I, you've pretty much covered most of the stuff. Uh, say. Okay. Cool. Um. So music. So around I, I'm gonna just take a guess here. Around the same time, this is why it's hard to go chronological, because as we mentioned, a lot of this happened simultaneously, or right. at least like bled into one another. Um, around the same time, I think you were playing in your bluegrass band. Not bluegrass. Not why? Well, it's old timey. Fast flying vestibules. It was a uh, yeah. Uh, well, we played 
music that predated bluegrass, but it was from the same source. It was Southern was, Mountain Okay, music. so was Fast Flying Vestibules your first kind of official band? Outside of the Irish bands that I played with in New York before I before I left. Okay, yeah. so this was around the same time, right? Yeah, um, early early seventies. Old timey. What would you even constitute as old timey? Like for those that don't know. Well, old timey. It so for example, when you think about bluegrass, you think of the five string banjo and playing that that rapid fire kind of thing. You know? Okay. But the same instrument, the five string banjo, which is what I play. You play a, a style called claw hammer, or uh, frailing, and it's it's an older style of, of playing the banjo, and it's a more it's more of a mountain style of playing, and it's and and they uh, sometimes the music is re- it's referred to as southern mountain music, um, or old timey meaning it predated bluegrass, but um, s- some of the old timey players were the ones who developed that whole st- that bluegrass style of playing in, around the 1940s or so 40s late 40s probably bill monroe and his his band the bluegrass boys mm-hmm. started the whole thing the banjo player was earl scruggs and he, he played that style and the name of the band was the bluegrass boys so they called that style bluegrass and that's how that's how it kind of took off All so right, we played an history. older style of country music but it was that's where it's where bluegrass came from okay. so you know uh and we we did a lot of uh, tunes and songs that were popular how, in the, how did you even like i mean I feel like it's normally associated with more rural areas, maybe. Like, how did well, you pick that up in well, the, the way cities? It, the way it happened, and it goes back to my brother Kevin, really, uh, who well, he was at the university. Kevin's 10 years older than me, mm-hmm. my late brother Kevin. Uh, and he was he would send home uh, LPs of, of uh, music that he would sort of discover. What school? Pardon? What school is he at? The University of Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, like he sent us home a cl- the first Clancy Brothers album, which came out in 1956 mm-hmm. or eight, I can't remember, and that was a real eye opener. But he he also sent home a Weavers album. And that Weavers were they were a group group that featured P- Pete Seeger on the five string banjo, and and I had was used to hearing my dad's tenor banjo, and, and you know in, in the in an Irish music context, when I heard the Pete Seeger's, I heard the five string banjo, and it sounded so nice. It sounded so sweet, you know, kind of. It's an open tuning kind of a you know banjo, so it has a nice sound to it. So I I that's I, I got into playing the five string. So until this point, you were primarily only a drummer, or you were playing other instruments too. I, I played yeah, I was a drummer. I started taking lessons when I was ten. I I played in the, out when I was twelve for the and I got a that's when I got a set of drums. Before that, I was playing on a practice pad. Um, and when I was around, I'd say 17, I, I started noodling around with the guitar. There was a guitar in the, in the apartment that, uh, uh, was left there by the boyfriend of one of my sisters, Pat, I think. So I just started playing around with it because I realized I could, I could back up Irish songs with it and tunes even. And then. But your drumming was not Irish at the time yet. Yeah, pretty much was only Irish. I thought uh, you started out with rock, like more rock and roll. Well, it, no, I started out with, you know, backing up my dad and PJ Conway, his button accordion playing friend, for house parties and things like that. But on a drum set. On like, a drum set, yeah. Not the Bowron. Not the, oh, no, no, the Bowron came later. The, the Bowron, nobody even heard of a Bowron at this point. And then then when I was in, at Iona, I lived, in the, I lived at home in the Bronx, and I used to play on weekends in all the dance halls in New York. 
all the Irish dance halls, not all of them, but a lot, most of them, the, the Jager House, the Yorkville Casino, the Tuxedo Ballroom, and the New York City Center with the P Patty Noonan's band in the city center. I was like a fill-in drummer for him. Um, I, w I, w I joined the Musicians Union at Local 802, which you had to do if you wanted to play in even the most remote bars in New York, Irish bars, you had to be in the union. But that meant you weird. got union? Pardon? It's kind of weird. Well, the, uh, Did you yes like have no. to pay union dues? Yeah, the, the dues were not that significant, and I got union You could scale. just sign up to be in the union? Uh, I can't remember if I had to pass a test of some sort or okay. you know, or have somebody bow for me or whatever. I, think, I don't think it, it wasn't too demanding. And I have, I have the directory the, uh, from 1967 of, the, of who was in well, the union. What was the purpose of, of that for the city? For the, for the city? Like, why did they require that to play in any bars? Uh, it, it was a wage, wage thing. So I always got union rates. I always got union wage. It was, That's uh, good. And if you were a band leader, you got, you got double the, mm. the rate. You know, there was, was that, that kind of thing. So that included when you did the parade? The, the parade? No, no, the parade was different. The parade was a marching band kind of thing. Oh. There was not, you didn't have to be in the union to be in a marching band. Do you want to explain that? Well, what I'm talking about? The, yeah, okay, the, the St. Patrick's Day parade, uh, which goes back to oh, the 1800s or so in New York. I, can't, I don't have the exact date. But um, I used to march in that with the, all, the ancient order of Hibernians, all accordion band. And they were all accordions. Except what for, is Hibernia? Well, of course, the Hibernia is, is the Latin name for Ireland. That was what, what the Romans called Ireland, the Hibernia, for it stands for winter camp. Okay. Well, I'm, ta I'm taking there. us down a rabbit hole. Just yeah, uh, talk about the parade. But the, AO, <laughs> the AOH, ancient government, was a, uh, uh, an organization that actually was formed in the late 1700s to pr protect Catholic churches from vandalism. And, you know, the Irish who, who immigrated here were, were, were Catholics and they, they saw the, you know, they, they needed to protect uh, the, mainly the churches. And that's how, that was one of the reasons they formed. So they became an, an Irish uh, kind of fraternal, you know. <laughs> we are so thing. off course right now. <laughs> well, you, you, that's how they started. And they're still around. The AOH is still here. They're okay. still with us. And so they, they were the sponsors of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Yeah. That's, so that's another thing that they did. And so the so I I marched in in the parade with the I was a drummer in the all accordion band okay they were, so they were all accordions except for the drum section, uh, and then when I was in high school I played in the, in my high school band Bishop Dubois, we were based in Manhattan and I also marched in the Bishop Dubois drum and bugle corps. And did you have to do both? I had to do both. I well because the Hibernian, Hibernians had the you know sort of the primary spots in the parade, so we always marched early. So how'd you pull that off? Well, I, I jumped in a cab. I had my my uniform in a, in a bag of some sort, and I changed in the cab out of out of the my. So AOH. you did the parade all the way through. Twice, yeah. And then you got you took a cab to the back. Start I jumped in of the, the cab, parade. went back to the starting point, and uh, and did it again. That is <laughs> I bold. did that a couple of times. I mean, you know, uh, that was kind of it was kind of fun actually. Uh, Okay, so just to fast forward, you have now explored a few different instruments, still primarily a drummer, but playing the banjo in um, old-timey band. What hap like, I know about FFV, Fast Flying Vestibules. Was there another significant one before Celtic Thunder came along? Oh, uh, well, no. 
except that there was another little, during the FFV days, I also did play in a rock and roll band, a couple of them, actually. That's when I, that's when I did my rock and roll kind of time. I feel like those are two very different aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, to me, as things kind of came along and happened, I just did them. Yeah, but like I have a picture of you like with the long hair in cutoff jean shorts and a cowboy hat. Like I can't picture you then also sitting down to play rock and roll drums. Like There's a picture in the hall of me doing that. Still had, in a cowboy hat though. Like, no, I had a headband on. Oh, right. The bandana. Sorry. <laughs> but do you know, see? I feel like you have Actually, to have two different uh, no, wardrobes you know, wait, for that you almost. Know, that was the FFE. I did play the drums in the FFE sometimes. But do you see it? Like those feel like two very di- different people. No, not really. I mean. Not different people, just different aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, so the the, the, the more rock oriented bands that I played in were, were more like folk rock. You know what I mean? Like we did with stuff by the band, we were Bob Dylan, you know, kind of, we did those kinds of things. Um, Van Morrison, I don't know. So, you know, it was still kind of folky. What was the folky. name of that band? There were there were two. The first one was called Froggy Little. Why? <laughs> don't ask me. Okay. I, and then the second one was called Big Deal. Well, is there anyone I would I would know from either of them? Well, your uncle had a role in Big Deal. Okay. Your uncle Terrence my brother and um and joe stork also did played uh, he played the bass uh so those two happened and then at one point celtic thunder came along okay so around 1977 uh the the well a little before that the fast flying vestibule we met up with steve hickman who was a really good old-time fiddler who happened to know a lot of Irish tunes as well. So we were like, oh, this is pretty cool. He, you know, because we were playing Irish music in the Fast Flying Vestibule. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our tagline was old-time country music, Irish dance tunes, folk songs, and ballads. You know, like the, that was our little you know, uh, kind of description, a <laughs> thumbnail description of what we did. So when we met Steve... I mean, it, I'm sure there was nothing else, to, no one else doing the same things. No, there was not. Yeah. There were not. And... But Steve was. Did you, know, you, we, you didn't tour at all with them, right? I did what? With FFV, you didn't do any like touring, right? Well, we, we went to um, we went to the fiddlers' conventions in North Carolina uh, several times to okay. to compete in the band competition. Sorry, I'm I am asking too many specific <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah. I I do want to know about. How Tell Celtic the time. Yeah. So originated. So basically, the, the the Steve Hickman connection was important, and and. We invited Steve to join us at, at Ireland's Four Provinces on Connecticut Avenue, where, which was an Irish bar that had booked the FFE to play because the Irish crowd, they loved country music. You know, it's still even popular in Ireland. And we, were, we mixed it up with the Irish music, so that was a good mix, a good, a good fit for them. And we invited Steve to, and, and, and Linda, who they, they were recently married, to join us. But now Linda played... She played the bass in Steve's old-timey band, but she also, of course, played the flute in the Irish Connection. So that was where, that's how I met Linda. She came into the four provinces with Steve, and we played a few tunes together. So that was the first. Then a little bit later... And Linda, for context, is a good family friend who I've called Auntie Linda for that's right, years now. That's right, Linda Hickman. And there was another a, a, a musician, Mark Quinn, played the button accordion, 
who was the first Irish musician I met when I came to D.C. in 1966. I actually sought out mm -hmm. the Irish music, and I found Mark at uh, Matt Cain's Bit O Ireland bar. Uh, and I, we, so we kind of hung out, and I played some gigs with him now and again. But I, we played up in Baltimore, and his regular guitar player, Larry Mader, couldn't do the gig, so Mark asked me to, to fill in. I did with the guitar, but also with the Bowron, which I, then that, the Bowron story is another one, but by this time I was playing it, and the owner of the bar loved it. He said, wow, that drum is crazy. It's really cool. Can, and Mark, Mark had a gig there, and he couldn't, he, had a, he said he, he, was, he had a conflict, he couldn't do it. So the, the bar owner said, can you play you know, this weekend, whatever it was? And I said, yeah, I'll get back to you. And I called Terry and I said, it's, let's form a band. I got a gig kind of thing. Like the gig so, came first. Okay. I'm a little confused because I feel like you're referencing New York and the D.C. area, New York and the D.C. area. Were you just going back and forth a lot? No, Terry had moved down here. So you weren't going to New York much? We weren't. What? It sounded like you were going up to New York a bunch. Uh, at this point, not that much. Okay. No. Um, okay. So 77, you and Terry... We had the gig. Celtic Thunder. We didn't have the band, but we I, I called Stephen. We called Stephen Linda, and, and me and Terry and Stephen Linda agreed to do the gig. And then Stephen Linda said, "Hey, we met this great singer. We should get her involved, also, Nita Conley." Mm -hmm. And she lived up in, in that in the Baltimore area, so we said, "Well, sure, what the heck?" And that's how we and we and we went and played the gig, and then they booked us there like on a regular basis. Hmm. So at this point, you are married and you have Allie and Nancy and you're working as a full-time musician. Yes. Yes. I'm just trying to think if I, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was really doing the music full-time at that point. Yeah. And what, like, how long did it take for Celtic Thunder to really make the name that it Not has long. today? Not long because one of the reasons uh, we decided to, to, to go in that direction was because it was, there was a lot of interest at that time. Like the chieftains were making big inroads in the, uh, you know, in, in the in the Irish music world, and, and they were coming from Ireland doing concerts in the Kennedy Center and Carnegie Hall. You know these big big, and and that's I can explain that in another session. But, <laughs> but, so we were doing that kind of thing. We were doing traditional Irish music, unlike it had been done before, because you know it was more like a bit of a stage Irish kind of a thing in concerts and. Uh, we were sitting down playing, which wasn't all that common at the time. We were playing jigs and reels, and we were singing songs. So we had we were combined. We were doing the song tradition and the and the tune tradition. And Steve and Linda and and uh, and um, Nita had some great three part harmonies that they sang, and a lot of S Scottish songs in particular, which is partly why we had the we used the Celtic term and and because it wasn't because we were doing a lot of that but they were doing some scottish music so we said oh, what the heck at the time celtic didn't mean what it kind of implies today people say oh, i play celtic you know like uh, what is it doesn't know it means they meddle around with with stuff that could be irish could be scottish they don't really okay. know a lot but back then it was a little different so and did you we intend... made our first album in 1979 so did you intend on being a full-time musician like that no. or just happened it just happened what were like what was your expectation like how like i don't know how does one just become a full-time musician uh, well 
without trying I was, to. I was a house husband also, you know, so I was doing that, that sort of thing. I was, you know, doing the, you know, the, the cooking and, and whatever. Coaching, and shopping soccer. And, uh, taking the kids to school and all. I have a picture of, of Allie and Johnny McDonough. Uh, that when we were we were taking Allie, we were dropping her off at uh, first grade or something. I mm-hmm. think. Um, so I did. That's that was the thing. I, you know, and that does get back to when I got had got my my master's degree, uh, and I <clears throat> tried to get a, a job in the you know African studies world or, uh, as an Africanist, get get a position that would you know mm-hmm. be a, be a fairly good one, and I did work for the Museum of African Art for about a year. But just on a, a kind of an ad lib basis, I, I did a lot of photography for them, in fact. Well, kind of I thing, feel like this is kind of a little bit of what I've wanted to get at sometimes is just um, what it, the, the differences between really pursuing a career in the arts versus kind of a career in the arts just sort of happening to you. You know what I mean? Like, there feel to, it feels like there are differences. Um, when you're doing it because you feel like you have to for work versus um, doing it because you love it and then it kind of just happens anyway. Well, my father always said, you know, stay with the music and don't, don't, don't abandon it, but don't make it your life, your life's work. He Why? Said, it's not, it's not worth it. You know, you, you work hard and you know, you, you, you don't get paid that much. If you really want, and he didn't get into specifics, but you know it's it's true. If it, unless you tour extensively, you, you know th- there's no guarantee. You don't get you don't have uh, benefits from being you know right. a, a musician. You don't have health care and that kind of thing. Uh, you don't get a regular salary. You, and but you didn't say that to me. Well, uh, listen, let me tell you right now. <laughs> don't make music your life's work. Oh, great. Oh, no. <laughs> Great, thanks for that. Uh, now, but you're doing the right thing. I mean, you know, we have a, uh, really a great album in store that, we, that hopefully will be out in oh a couple of months. And, uh, okay, that's All right. story. <laughs> that's yeah. not the point. But see, it worked out well that way, though. You got you and Patrick both got your degrees, but you're still actively involved in the music, and that's that's the reward. But I mean, part. like, I could argue that that same sentiment could be applied to theater, but you didn't say that to me about theater. Well, yeah, uh, I I probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> well, now we know. That's hilarious. I didn't want to interfere though, because I wanted to see you know, kind of. You want to see how it went? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I feel all the time like I was just the guinea pig for, uh, for Patrick a little bit. You were you were actually pursuing you know your what you really wanted to go for you know what I mean you really wanted to study theater and and, and acting and so forth so that's not you, you have to do that if that's what you want you kind of have to go for it and see what happens I mean that was the other side of it Patrick did not have any any sort of particular thing in mind when he went when he started college you know right. he, he was looking around so it, it was a whole different story you you you. You had your mind made up, so... Okay, fine, that's fair. And I guess that connects back to the sentiment that you left us with last time, which was, do what you love and love what you do. Um, And that's what I feel like you've been doing for uh, your whole music career. Um, I know it was like an underlying passion and pursuit 
within the context of your other endeavors. Um, but I don't know, like Celtic Thunder really ch- changed things up for that, right? It did, yeah. Celtic Thunder, uh, we got we had great. First of all, we were uh, Mick Maloney heard us, Doctor Mick Maloney, and he's the one who said, "Let's make an album." And you, he said, "You pick the label, and I'll make sure it happens." So at this point, were you just primarily playing in the D.C. area? Uh, no, we no be, again because or like northeast. We got we we got in, into some sort of. Um, uh, I forget how it happened, but we we were we were traveling of of you know a bit. We went up to um, went up to New York a couple of times. Uh, we and then and actually we we played in Gertie's Folk City. This was after we had uh, an album. What's out, that? That's where Bob Dylan got his start. <laughs> and it's in Greenwich Village. It's gone okay. now, but it's a famous uh, folk club. Hmm. We played there a couple of times. Uh, you know, we played in the we played the White House twice for the in the Clinton years. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. We played in all the all the halls, all the all the uh, concert halls in the D.C. area, the Smithsonian, like the Baird Auditorium, and all the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played the Listener Auditorium at GW, you know, Gaston Hall. And Uncle Terry was writing songs for the band, but you were also doing traditional stuff. Yeah. I mean, his stuff is yeah. traditional, but... And he was writing songs in the, in the traditional style. Right, that's... What, yeah. Original songs. And so that was that was a big plus for us, too, because uh, we weren't just doing other people's stuff. We were doing our own original material, and that, that's a definitely a defining sort of... Characteristic. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's, that's really neat. I just... How and long we, were we, you... We played in Town Hall in New York City also, and symphony space up there as well so how long you kind of started in 77 and how long did i know there were a few iterations of band members but how long were you guys like well holding we, out? yeah we went through various uh, fiddlers and changes and that kind of thing and we probably we played in that that original sort of context till around the end of the 90s and then we played on into a, around 2004 or 5 in one format or another mm-hmm. before we just kind of stopped. And a very well-established, uh, very um, large following, I would argue, although it's, you know, I'm on the inside of it, so that's how I feel about it. At well, we had, we had a, a, one of our, our, our second album, The Light of Other Days, which had the song When New York Was Irish on it, uh, was a big hit, and and Greenland had actually released it in Japan. Really? With Japanese notes and everything. Really? I have a copy of it downstairs. Interesting. So yeah, it, it and and it's still it's still popular today because I uh, know. Well, even uh, Patrick has a friend uh, from Penn State who told him. I don't even know how it came up. He he might have to correct me later, but told him that when New York was Irish is like their family's favorite song <laughs> yeah, to I sing at story. some family gathering or something. And then yeah. Patrick was like, "My uncle wrote that," and yeah. she was like, "No way!" Yeah, I know. That, right? That, that's kind of how it went that down. A lot, actually, because the uh, Compass Records bought out Greenlit's catalog, and the one the what one is album, Greenlit? Pardon? What is Greenlit? Greenlit was the late the name of the label that. Uh, that Celtic Thunder was on, okay. along with all the other major Irish uh, traditional acts were on there, and Lisa Null was the was the founder of that label. Okay. Um, so, at some point though, um, after you were finished, 
a boy band wanted to buy the name. Yes. Which is why if you Google Celtic Thunder now, well, they, here's the without thing. getting specific. Well, they didn't want to buy it. They wanted, they, they contacted us and they said, we, we realize that, that you have this name. We, we had a, we had a copyrighted, uh, not a copyrighted, what do you call it? Um, uh, patented? No, no, no. Um, uh, in, intellectual trademark. property? We had a trademark, oh. but we let, it, we let it go. We didn't renew it. And they knew that, too. They researched it, and they said, you know, but, we, but our name was still out there, and our, and our mm-hmm. stuff was still available. And they said, well, we know you, you know, we know you have this name, and, but we want to use it also. Mm-hmm. So we want you to sign a coexistence agreement. Where we can both still u- we can we can still use our name, thank you, and, <laughs> but they but they're going to go ahead and use it also, and they were the the producers who did the, um, I guess it's mostly a, a TV thing for PBS. The Celtic Woman was the, the sure. show. They wanted to do a sequel, and I, I think they wanted to call it Celtic Man or something like that, but they couldn't get the rights to that. Hmm. And then somebody said, "Well, let's go with Celtic Thunder," and then they so. They did their research. They found us, and they said, and they had a big law firm in New York, you know, kind of running this, and uh, they paid us something like a thousand dollars. That uh, seems a little and skimpy. Th- we had, we had, we were like our hands were tied. We didn't have much choice, right. and we and we signed it. And now, what's really infuriating is if you go to the, uh, their website, they they have a bunch of CDs, right? Mm-hmm. But among them is the Light of Other Days. Hmm. Like Celtic Thunder, so and people who go there won't know the difference. You know, they'll see them on on PBS. What it's on like Wikipedia or something that it says that? No, I don't think it. I don't think what no. on their personal website? Yeah, on their on their. Well, the, that seems like. Yeah, it seems unethical. Some, unethical. But also crosses some intellectual property laws. Well, well, they're not saying anything. They're not saying well, this is not us. This is that other group. You know, and they're just putting it out there. And, it, and it, it's, a, it's crazy. All right, if it's there's any, any lawyers listening that want to <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, clarify some things, that would be great. Um, right, so if you do choose to Google Celtic Thunder, just also maybe type in Jesse or Terrence or, Winch. Yeah, or we try to we try to call it the Celtic Thunder Band. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that distinguishes us from Celtic And you're Thunder. still on Spotify also under those titles yeah. so people can listen. But, I mean, it didn't obviously end for you when Celtic Thunder ended. No, no. Um, I like things. You, you've been playing music regularly uh, in my whole life. Um, and you were inducted into the Irish Music Hall of Fame, I think probably when I was like 12, right? 2012? No, I think when I was 12. Oh, when you were 12. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It was about nine, nine years ago. Okay, well then I was not twelve. <laughs> um, and that was the, that was, was the, like that was the the for the um, Mid Atlantic region of Coltus Kiltoriaran, and that, that which and that's basically the Dublin based uh, uh, worldwide organization that's designed to like um, promote and preserve traditional Irish music. So you're in the hall. You're in the Irish Music Hall of Fame for the Balrog. Yes, the Bowron and the, and, the, and the drumming. It's and, and I you know I still teach the Bowron. That's like so the Bowron for people that don't know is this Irish drum that is played on the side. So it's like it it's, sits it's, on your leg. How do you fr- explain yeah, it? It's a frame drum, so it's a round frame drum, and you set it on your on your thigh and you play it with with one hand, 
with a double-ended stick. Some players, called hand strikers, play just play with their hand, but it's a back and forth uh, motion. And what distinguishes the, the you know what makes the the bow run unique is the way you play it, because otherwise it's it's a drum similar to what Native Americans play. And uh, there's an Egyptian drum called the tar. That's just, that's the same. It's just a frame drum. It's just a frame with a a goatskin head stretched over it. That's basically what it is. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I know that you got introduced to it. Actually, I don't know if I know how you got introduced well, to it. Well, that's an interesting story. Actually. Oh boy, I don't, should, should we go there? <laughs> uh, so I was at the Philadelphia Folk Festival again around 1968, I think it was, and um, Irish Northern Aid was there. And Irish Northern Aid was a group that was uh, based in the U.S., designed to help the struggle in Northern Ireland by raising money or uh, whatever, mainly raising money. And they had, they had a, like a booth at, at the festival. And I was there, you know, I was interested in folk music. I, I, that's why we went to, mm-hmm. to, to the festival. But the Irish, whatever Irish part was there was, was also uh, a big draw for me. And anyway, I saw, I saw the, um, I saw the, uh, the Irish Northern Native people were actually walking, going somewhere. And one of them had, was holding up this drum. And I, I, I stopped and I said, what? Well, I said, what is that? You know, and he said, this is the Bowron. This is Ireland's native drum. And I was like, hallelujah. You know, <laughs> this was a real epiphany for me. I was like, my drum has found me. The dog is barking. I know. I, I think someone <laughs> might be here. Um, sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, asked, I said to him, how do you play it? And he said, I don't know. But he, <laughs> had, it, he had it as a symbol you know, okay. with, uh, with Northern A, they were, they, you know, uh, the, the Bauer. But, but the interesting thing about it is um, the, that person was Brian Heron. And Brian, uh, and I got to know him a lot better because we ended up playing for some benefits for Irish Northern A in, in Manhattan. But Brian um, was the grandson of James Connolly, the great Irish patriot who was executed by the British in 1916 for Oh, his my role. gosh. This is definitely a rabbit hole. Well, it's a good one, though. Okay. And and he also went on to to um, to uh, found the Irish Arts Center in in New York. Okay. Uh, so, okay, there's something I've been thinking about this whole time, and it's the relationship between Irish music in Ireland and Irish music in America, and in right. the, you know specifically the Northeast region. Um, I feel like just because I have been in both environments that there's not really um I don't know there's not like a ton of difference other than the yes and no yes and no I mean I say that you know I say that with a grain of salt like of course in certain circumstances there is a ton that's the source that's where it's coming from that's the motherland so to speak um but I feel like there are a ton of traditional Irish musicians in the Northeast region, especially ones that have just moved here from Ireland and just live here now and are um, playing here instead. But do you, I don't know. Do you ever feel like an imposter in a way? Oh, not at all. Uh, because you, ha- you have the, you know, they have the immigrant community and then you have, you know, the, the first and second and more generation of, of people who, uh, you know, are from Ireland. But one thing you did touch on, there, there is... 
there there is a, there is a sort of an Irish American culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there is there is that. That's something that's different from what's in Ireland. But it's but there's a huge overlap, certainly with tunes and and songs. You know, uh, there you know there's there's a lot of flow back and forth, and uh, <clears throat> you know the 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 immigrant musicians who come here. They bring that with them when mm-hmm. they play in all the in the in all the Irish American kind of you know festivals and, and contexts and that kind of thing, but there is an Irish American sort of uh, thing. What and, do you and think? And Celtic Thunder was one of the biggest practitioners of that. Right. What do you think is um, particularly special about the Irish music scene in DC? I mean, I know you've spent so much time not only playing in it but also photographing it and. Yeah, DC wasn't always a, a big Irish music place, but it became that in in in, in recent years. I think uh, a lot of things helped helped uh, that along. One of them was establishing a cultish branch here. In back in 1995, Bob Hickey was the guy who, who did that. Um, and then there's a group called the Greater Washington Cayley Club that sponsors a lot of the dances and stuff, uh, set dancing in particular. Uh, we had a chapter of the of the uh, Conrana Guelga, which is the Gaelic league for Irish language here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at Catholic University, there was an Irish studies program, which kind of came and went a couple of different times. It's, it no longer exists now, but it, uh, uh, you, you, of course, know Jennifer O'Riordan, who was the assistant yeah. director there. So um, what would you consider to be then the other hubs for Irish music in the country? Oh well, the you know like New York is definitely right. a big one. Uh, Boston is another big one. Philadelphia has its scene, um, and really, you'd be surprised at some of the areas that where you'll find a major Irish concentration. And like like in Montana, for example, really? uh, where a lot of Irish went to to work in the mines hmm. uh, and and settle there, and um, some really interesting things. And San Francisco was a big a big uh, destination. Any southern. Um, there was a big, a big, uh, there was an area, in, anyway, in, in uh, New Orleans uh, for a long time. There was, and then, and then in, I think, Jackson, Mississippi, hmm. there's, there was, there's a, uh, uh, there's an Irish presence there in uh, uh, Atlanta. There was a cultist convention in Atlanta, several, that you went to and you I danced just, in. I feel like at any given point in time, you can walk into an Irish bar somewhere and if there's music you end up knowing someone specifically you like I remember this one time I it was the first month I had moved to New York in September of 2018 and I had met up with a cousin uh for dinner or something and then I was walking to the subway and I was in the East Village and I heard Irish music from the a, a sidewalk somewhere (laughs) around the block like I don't know I heard it around the block I kind of followed the sound I ended up in this bar called Mary O's um in the East Village and there was a session going on and it was a bunch of Irish musicians playing (laughs) and I sent my dad a video and he was like oh yeah I know that guy it's Killian Valley was the piper there yeah 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 yeah. um but I feel like that ends up being the case a lot definitely yeah the session scene in particular like the landmark, which you've been to, you know, yeah. Don Mead is an old friend of mine, and uh, yeah, it's very, it's very 
national, international. Like, I don't know. There's just like a kind of a transcendence about it where. There is. That's true. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how to explain. Yeah. So. Brian Conway is uh, another. I don't, I don't even know if I've done a good job of kind of explaining your mark in the Irish music community because you're um, also a humble person and won't necessarily brag about it, but. I'm great. <laughs> okay yeah like I feel like it's pretty significant um and before I let you go I just kind of want to hear what your hope is for the future of Irish music especially in um well the area uh actually I as I've said many times uh the future is in good hands when you when you, you come to the Irish Inn for example where where I play uh on now now it's most Tuesdays and we're either outside or in Glen Echo. Yeah, uh, you'll 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 hear some of these kids who play. Kids, I mean, well, actually, they do range in age uh, from. I don't know. Some of the younger ones are like probably the eleven, twelve 10, years old. Yeah. But then you have you know like uh, you have uh, high school age kids, mm-hmm. you know, and college age kids playing phenomenal music. Andrew Caden, for example. He's a fiddler who won the All Ireland in the fifteen to eighteen year category. Can you explain what the All Ireland is? Yeah, but let me. He won this when he was fifteen, so right. he's competing with eighteen year olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the All Ireland is an annual competition uh, that takes place in Ireland, and it's open to anyone who has um, competed in and won first or second place in a regional f- competition. So regional, originally it was around Ireland, but it, it expanded when Coltis, Kiltoriaren uh, started to expand its its uh, branches and stuff. What's the what's the um, musicians equivalent to a fesh? Yeah, well, well the, a fla. Would, would that be, be considered and the they regional mean, you know, they, competition? They, fesh and fla means you know kind of means festival or you a know fesh, festive a gathering. A fesh is a competition for Irish dancers. Yeah. Um, which I participated in frequently. Many years, yeah. For many years. So the flaw would be the regional competition that you'd have to place in uh, to the go. The flaw would be a m- more d- distinctive uh, kind of a competition. Right, because feshes are pretty common. Yeah. Cause, but see, even out of fesh, you would have music competitions, but they weren't they weren't cultist-sponsored. Okay. The cultist sponsors the All-Ireland competition, so... And it draws competitors. From and then like, the All Ireland is obviously in Ireland. It's in Ireland, but you have competitors from all around Ireland, from England, Scotland, Do Australia. Do they the split United you States. up by nationality, or they? It's just age group. It's what is it? Do they split you up by nationality, or is it all age group? Oh no, it's just by age and age and, a, and ability. For example, Josh Dukes, who's local here, is an African American who won the All Ireland on, on the uh, guitar accompaniment category. And it's really about your abilities and your understanding of the music and the culture that that you'll be awarded rewarded for. That's and pretty cool. So, so Andrew, like I said, he he won the All Ireland when he was fifteen, and he's a local kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a student of Brian, and still is to Brian Conway. Uh, and Brian is is definitely a resource person who has he's he's the one who trains these fiddlers to really be at their top best, and that, that's why a lot of these young kids they're students of his. But there are others who have mm-hmm. also. Uh, done the same thing. Uh, Brendan Mulvihill uh, also, well, he was not in this area anymore, but he just recently moved back to Ireland. And of course, Mitch Fanning. Mitch Fanning gets a lot of them started, actually. Yeah. Teaches them the the, uh, the basics, and then 
if he finds somebody who really wants to wants to excel and, and do that, you know, go that route, he, he refers them to Brian pretty much. There's a lot of a lot of good teachers. So you have that. a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith because the teachers here are really good and very dedicated. And there's a lot of a lot of kids who are interested in that. And that, that relates to the social aspect of it all. I think that's that's really a, a, a big factor and it really helps a lot with kids. You know, if, if they if you didn't know anybody else who was doing it, you would feel kind of isolated and yeah. Well, that's how I felt with Irish dance. Yeah. You need you need a you need a buddy and I think to, to go along with it. And you can cause you can talk about what you're doing and you can sort of compare notes and that kind of thing and and then go to go to these sessions and play with, you know, the old people and that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean it definitely is. Um there are massive age gaps between oh, yeah. musicians, but it you don't really notice or care or No. You know. No. It does it's, it's, it's very much like a passed down tradition anyway. That's right. That's the name of the game. Cool. Well, any closing remarks before I let you go? Do what you love and love what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know we, I, I tried to kind of cover young adulthood, but obviously we um, went a bit further than that. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, uh, what's the term, drive home the fact that you have had a relatively untraditional path. And That's for sure. it, yeah. it seems like you're pretty content with <laughs> most of it yeah, yeah, yeah. at this point yeah. especially in the music which is kind of you know obviously my um focus with a lot of people on this has been artists yeah um there have been a lot of artists because that's primarily who i am surrounded by is a lot of artists and yeah. kind of just this this faith in the the art that you do and that it will find its way or work itself out yeah find its people i think that's true yeah cool well thank you dad for joining me today thank you for joining <laughs> us um this has been thoughtful intentions i'm your host fiona winch and i was joined by my dad jesse winch